You're listening to FluxPod. My name is Matthew Repetra. This episode features Larry Fitzmorris, uh, who uh, does a, a newsletter called Last Donut of the Night. Larry is a prolific writer. He has written for pretty much all the major music publications. I think he's probably best known for working at uh, Pitchfork for about five years or so. Uh, he was kind of a star writer there. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, this episode is going to be a lot about music writing and media, uh, both in terms of, you know, both of our experiences doing things on our own, uh, independent media. I mean, I mean I've, I've been doing this for a long time. Larry just started. So comparing notes on that. And we're also going to talk a lot about, you know, a lot of the problems that exist in the media, uh, both uh, in practice and structure and, you know, just how it's affected audiences and the people who are coming up who want to write. So, you know, if you're not interested in media stuff, this is a terrible episode for you, and I apologize. We don't get too deep into any music in particular. Uh, but you know, uh, there's plenty of other episodes I have that are almost entirely about music. So, uh, if you want to hear all the episodes of Flux Pod, I just want to remind you, uh, $5 a month on uh, patreon.com slash Flux will get you four to five extra episodes per month, one per week. They come out on Saturdays and some of them are, you know, interviews and some of them are, Q&As and some of them are like basically uh, like uh, public radio, college radio, uh, all music episodes that I could never put out over a regular feed. So yeah, if you want all of them, check them out. Uh, and again, if you like the show, please tell people because this is independent media and you know, there's nothing, there's no big push behind it. There's no money. So rely on you to get the word out. But let's do it. This is Larry Fitzmorris. Larry, can you uh, tell the audience who you are and what you do? Yes, um, I am Larry Fitzmaurice. I'm a writer and editor. I write mainly about music, but I kind of dabble where the where the wind takes me to kind of mix some phrases there. And uh, I, my main focus is I run a newsletter uh, focused on music and popular culture on Substack called Last Donut of the Night. So uh, you, and that, that's a relatively recent development. Like you've been doing that for like less than a year. Yeah, I started it in July of last year. What was the inspiration for deciding to do that? Because you, I mean, you you've worked for like a lot of like big publications, and uh, you know, I think this is. I don't. I don't remember if you had like a blog before that. Mm, no, I didn't. Yeah, I mean, I. Yeah, I mean, like I pretty much kind of came up in my career working at like almost exclusively through publications. I never had the self-publishing or kind of blog or personal Tumblr thing that a lot of other writers develop their voice through. So, I mean, I, I've I've been thinking about doing this for a few years, honestly. Um, I think it was maybe like summer of 2019. I was saying to my friends, like, I was like, you know, like, this is something I've been talking about for a year. And if I, if I don't do it in the next year, I feel like I'm never going to do it at all. Um, and 
when I left my most recent job at the Fader last year. Um, was that last year? Yeah, it was last year. When I left my most recent job at the Fader last year, I was like, okay, now's the time to start it. And then the pandemic began and I kind of was both overburdened by work and kind of not really working at all and just kind of figuring things out. And then once the summer hit, I was like, okay, well now I really, now I really have no choice, but to, but to finally <laughs> do this. So I, I dove right in. So what has the experience been like to have like total freedom in your writing? Um, You know, it's funny because at first I was kind of nervous about operating without a tether. Um, self-editing, I mean, uh, you know, all, kind of everything that comes with that. Like uh, my first my first ever post, which was about uh, just kind of the future of music writing within digital media in general, I actually had my wife edit for me because I was like, I, you know, like this is kind of like maybe like, a more serious post. Like I'm, I'm not really like comfortable with like, you know, writing stuff without, uh, having somebody look at it beforehand. But, you know, after that, and as I kind of got a little looser with it, I was like, okay, this feels normal. I mean, it's freeing in a way because my main impetus for starting the newsletter was because I just found over the last two or three years that, um, all the stuff I wanted to write about, nobody ever really wanted me to write about. Um, right. you, you had one post where like you had an employer who just straight up told you that they weren't interested in what you thought about how music sounds, which is so brutal, <laughs> but I think really gets across like what the media wants from music publication, uh, music writing now, which is like, uh, can we just not really involve music so much? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean like, you know, like there was, a, there was a shift around, around like 2014, 2015, I think, where um, with the advent of streaming becoming kind of more of a of a presence and not just kind of like a thing on the side and just, you know, the way, I mean, there's so many, there's so many reasons why this happened, but, you know, a lot of culture writing and music writing became less focused on criticism and kind of engaging with the art directly and more with like, well, you know, what does this say about blank? Or, you know, what is the economics of behind blank? Uh, and yeah, I mean, I just found over the years, because I've, I've been freelancing on and off for about three, three and a half years now, that even freelancing, I would watch almost month by month ever since I started freelancing, just the opportunities to write about uh, interesting things or even just like, kind of broad, like, you know, cultural uh, trends stuff, they were just kind of disappearing. Um, a, a good example of, of what you mean, I think, is the article that you just wrote about Dua Lipa for the New York Times that came out, I think, today yeah. or yesterday, um, which is, you know, about Dua Lipa, who's a massive pop star. So there's so it's really so to a large extent, it's a celebrity story. And then it's also a tech story. And like the actual sound of Dua Lipa's music is sort of like neither here nor there. It's like, yeah, people liked her music. Yeah. Yeah, ex yeah exactly. And, and that's that's really what a mainstream publication wants. And I, f I first really kind of hit this as an editor when I was uh, doing music editing at BuzzFeed. Uh, that was my original job there. And you know, just realizing, oh, for anything to break through and to, to a large audience, to scale, you know, to use a tech phrase, mm. 
you know, it really can't be about music like nine out of 10 times. Yeah. Like, once in a while it can be, but largely people just want to have something be about celebrity, about uh, or it's a tech or business story, or it's uh, something about identity, whether it's the create the artist identity or you know, something to do with that, you know, or like, or like their identity as a consumer. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's dead on. I mean, I think something that there's a real paradox with music writing in general, where I think, especially in terms of digital media, I mean, look, I started, my career started around like, I want to say like 2008. And I was, that was kind of right before digital media became like a real thing. Like I was, my first job was working at spin, I was the associate staff writer at the website, which, you know, I'm not telling tales out of school when I say that it was just a mess. It wasn't a good website by any means. And nobody who was working on that website had any real idea of how to. Yeah. But by that point, spin had been in a kind of a state of collapse going back at least five years. Yes, exactly. Yes. That too. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. uh, That whole thing as well. So, you know, there was this kind of like, tech phobic uh agnosticism towards internet uh publications in general that was kind of bewildering to me and kind of forced me to kind of think about just focusing on writing and honing my craft more but you know i think as digital media became more of a thing music writing became a really easy entry point for a lot of younger writers in terms of because you know like everyone listens to music so it's like okay I liked a song or I went to see a show, I'll write about it. And I think you see, you saw a lot over this last decade, a lot of really talented writers uh, essentially moving away from music writing, uh, if not, you know, partially, then entirely. I mean, and, and there's a history of that. I mean, if you look at like old spin from like the 80s and 90s, you see all these uh bylines by people who have become very famous writers for things that don't really involve music. Yep. Like yeah. Colson Whitehead off the top of my head. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, that's uh, absolutely. Um, I think Jeff Chang, too, uh, was writing about hip hop a lot in the 2000s and then pivot, kind of pivoted away to politics as well. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's a natural thing to that because, I mean, ultimately, if you're a writer, you know, being hemmed into one topic is not the healthiest thing. No. Yeah, yeah, definitely not. <laughs> but it's but uh, but like it's funny I say that too, but it's like you know, I I've written about movies and TV for other places and I've written about other other kind of artistic disciplines cuz popular culture is really the thing I'm invested in, but I I always feel like when I'm writing about movies or TV that I'm kind of pretending a little bit or did, like, did, yeah, so did, I mean I've had that experience too. Like I always feel like I'm just the uh, a guest, you know. I'm I'm yep. cuz I, for one, I've just been in the music lane. I feel like that's my home, that those are my people. The music writers are my people one way or another, uh, whether you like them or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I mean, look, and I know like people who write about film full time and look, it just feels like, you know, you can write in that lane and feel like you're contributing something, but it's maybe you don't have the same depth of knowledge. So there's like a touch of imposter syndrome. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, like, 
I wrote a lot about film and TV for Vice when I was the culture editor there. And whenever my coworkers would be like, this was a nice piece, I'd be like, you know, thanks for being nice. But like, it's not like, <laughs> I don't, I'm, not, I'm not very happy with how this came out. I don't think I have any authority here. But like, the interesting thing is that like, that's like people... I mean, I don't even really know what people like reading about anymore. <laughs> like that, that's that's a whole <laughs> discussion. But well, I mean, I mean, a very harsh reality is realizing how few people want to read at all, much yes. less read things about other things. You know, so that's kind of getting at what I was saying before with like scaling an audience. Like mm. a lot of like when 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 media was you know almost entirely or entirely print. You know, they didn't have metrics on, on pages, you know, they couldn't right. see what the audience liked or disliked. So magazines could really just be whatever and they could go on weird larks and they can do stuff that just flatters the writer or editor that the audience could not care less about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that, I mean, you know, I... <sighs> As far as really working full time at places, I started out at Pitchfork, where for the I worked there for almost five years, and you know the uh, I didn't really have any access to metrics until n- close to the end, and at that point, I didn't really give a shit because I was too busy working, <laughs> like focusing on what I was doing. How, how then, much did metrics matter to Pitchfork at that time, as far as you could tell? I mean, I feel like it was something they were always aware about, but never really heavily discussed. Um, it, it, I, I mean, the, the way things are now, it seems like that's definitely a concern, like post-Condé Nast. But like, mm. it seems like in the pre-Condé Nast era, there was more of a, a sense of mission. Right. I, I mean, I also think that if you if you work in if you've worked in digital media at any point in the last like five years, you can just look at other publications and see what they do and kind of the sea changes in like their coverage and be like, right, well they're following the metrics here. Like this is, you know, they're, they're writing about this or posting a news story about this because this is something that people click on and, you know, want to read about. And I think something that you, you kind of mentioned the harsh reality before about <laughs> how few people actually read this stuff. And I mean, this kind of brings it full circle back to doing my newsletter is that, you know, I've had so many times over the past several years where I've really just like, worked hard on a piece and been like, I think this is a good piece of criticism or a good profile that I wrote. And I see it go out there and it really is kind of a roll of the dice in terms of if anybody reads it or engages with it, uh, partially because you're just like handing this work. I guess this is how I see it now more than I did then, but you're handing this work over to a platform through your editor and being like, please give this, please give this the love it needs to, you know, be read. And a lot of times it just doesn't because the priorities and in digital media of, you know, the social teams versus the editorial teams are so completely different. They might as well be on another planet, but right. And it's funny. Cause like, I feel like both sides are trying to, uh, they're, they're thinking of audience, but in completely Ooh. different ways. Yeah. And th- I think this, this, the social driven way where it ultimately leads to everyone doing the same thing all the time. Cause you're just chasing, this very ephemeral audience and what they might be interested into on a, like a hour to hour basis. So everything ends up being the same. And ultimately I think that's like a much worse experience for the audience. So in, in trying to cater to the audience, you end up with making a thing that is alienating or boring. Yeah. It's flat. I mean, it's kind of flattening in terms of like, 
what people actually engage with. I, I'm not sure it's anything that people actually want. And I mean, I've been really, I'll, I'll be really honest here. I have been dispirited over the last five years as I've worked at various places and I've witnessed um, basically editorial direction at a lot of publications be handed over to social. Um, and, you know, I, as a caveat, I have a lot of respect for what social teams do. And I, I think that something that's undersung about digital media in general is the amount of pressure and often abuse that people who work in social receive both internally and from the outside world. But, you know, there's, there, there have been so many instances in my career where I have been in a tra traffic meeting or uh, uh, just like a trending goals meeting or whatever buzzword is used to describe this shit. And I have somebody sitting across from me who maybe has never really written a piece in their life being like, you know, this search term is number five. So uh, in on Google right now, so you should commission five articles about it. And I have to gently be like, it's not, not your job to, to tell me, <laughs> tell me this, but I increasingly, it is their job to tell. Oh me yeah. This. And it's, I've, and it's, it makes sense. It's a logical thing, but it's not a thing that, really connects to writing no, the actual creation of content and like i mean i've been on both sides of this experience so like i know that like uh certainly i remember like really being when i was uh at buzzfeed doing the quiz stuff being like okay here are ideas that i'm certain that if they if someone made this it would do really well but like no one really wanted to do them uh for one reason or another you know mm. and like but like that having to the will to desire to make something it's a very different thing from recognizing the utility of it. Yeah, no, that's that's really well put. <laughs> but but I, I think the point is is like these. It's not that like the social thing or the writing. Like these things are working at cross purposes more and more. Yeah, especially yeah. in terms of like the health of a publication and, and an audience's relationship with the publication. Because I think if you. <sighs> the problem everyone's trying to deal with is okay. How do people like get any of this content? Well, they get it from feeds. It, like a thing just randomly comes into a feed and they click on a link and they go to the thing. Mm. But people increasingly don't have loyalty to publications. They don't care about like, Oh, I just go to this thing and I like reading the stuff that's there or I care about what this publication is one way or another. Like that's the thing that's dying out. And like, <laughs> and you can say like, oh, it's dying out because people are getting things from feeds. But I think that catering things to those feeds is the thing that makes it people not care about publications because the publications end up being less and less, they have less and less character. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And there, there is always this instinct too to be, I mean, I'm sure you're going to find this to be a familiar sensation here. You know, something hits at a publication and, it, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's because it's a really well-written or original idea and the reaction within instead of developing more well-written and original ideas is, okay, so let's do five more stories about iteration. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do five more versions of the same thing. And then, you know, I see, I see it happen every time. I don't know why nobody ever learns, but all of those attempts flatline, they don't perform well. Then everyone's left scratching their head being like, well, traffic's down. So let's do 10 more of the same thing. And it's like, no, you just did this. Like this doesn't work, but you know, there is that kind of quick fix, uh, like grasping at straws thing. That's constantly happening with growing an audience, which, 
I mean, honestly, I think is why I find the newsletter so rewarding because I'm just talking directly to people who like are reading it and I know that they're getting in their inbox. And I think for a while I was like, are they reading it? I have no idea. But as I've kind of directly engaged more with readers, like, you know, I'll, I'll send something out. They'll, I'll think to myself, well, you know, maybe I just wrote this for me and it doesn't really matter. And I'm just doing this for fun. So whatever. And then I get a few nice emails from readers saying that they really enjoyed it. And I, that's honestly more rewarding to me than like, 90% of the work that I do that actually makes me money. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I, I absolutely have this experience. And like, I, I, I try to tell people that like, if you like something a writer has written, even if they're like a relatively famous writer, you should, you, you, you should not hesitate to write them a note or a tweet or whatever it's going to be to say so, because writers really don't get a lot of feedback. And when they do, it's mostly just negative. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, look, writers, I think, especially, especially in the digital age, I think it's increasingly rare or the age of digital media, rather. I think it's increasingly rare to get feedback from your own editors. <laughs> you just send something and then, you know, suddenly you see it socialized and you're like, wait, what? This went up? Like, no, there was no notes or anything? Like, it's, you know, it's very disorienting. So any sort of feedback is always... Any sort of any feedback that's not like abusive or bigoted is always welcome. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. One thing you wrote, I mean, kind of going back to, the, I, I, I mentioned, uh, I quoted another th- a thing that you wrote, and it's from the same post. It's like this is uh, DJ Coe's post that you did, uh, I guess, a few weeks ago. And something that I really connected with, uh, related to, was you talking about uh, this your experience talking to other music critics, music writers in the past year, and they were telling you that they were not checking out music as much. And when they were, they were gravitating to softer, quieter things. And you were having the opposite experience, which was also the case for me, where you're going deeper listening, like more researched listening and also like higher energy. Yeah. And then I found myself <laughs> flatlining again recently. And I'm kind of like, it's almost like the kind of thing where I'm trying to get myself back into it again. And I, th- I think it's largely because like, as we were just talking about before we started here, like I literally just moved, which is something where you're like, Oh, this will take two days. And then three weeks later, you're like, where did the last two days go? <laughs> but um, right. I mean, life gets in the way and I feel like you can't always have the same investment. Like you're like, it's, it, it, your interests will come and go or it'll just get like redistributed something else. But I think, yeah. I mean, I think one of the, the, the major benefits of me doing flux blog all this time is that it gives me this like, machine in my life that pushes me towards constantly having to engage with things just you know just to keep it moving and i think that i mean are you getting that experience from doing the the newsletter now that you just kind of have to or you just stop having anything to write about i I am getting that experience i mean so one of the one of the things i do for my newsletter is i do a like kind of like a weekly uh playlist which is kind of like you know kind of like blogs around the songs on the playlist called the Baker's dozen. And I do that typically for my paying subscribers. And, um, 
you know, typically with like very few exceptions, the Baker's dozen is always music that's like somewhat new or like just stuff that I have like recently heard for the first time. So it's like, you know, it's 2021 right now, but maybe I'll throw a few tracks in 2019 on a record that I just heard that kind of stuff. Um, and that kind of keeps me in this loop of like, okay, I'm checking stuff out and I got to put it in this, uh, box to like revisit. And then I'll, I like this. So I'll come back to this later. And it does give me like the drive to like continue engaging with new music in a way that is a lot easier to manage than like my typical freelance life where I'm like, like a lot of the stuff I'll be listening to is kind of dictated by what I'm working on, so to speak. Hmm. Are there things that you've written about that you probably would have never written about, uh, professionally Uh, or or have the opportunity, I guess. Besides things just being obscure, just like, have you, have you like been writing about types of music that you hadn't tried before? Like through the newsletter? Yeah. I mean, it does kind of enable me to like, like, I feel like I'll hear like, uh, I'll hear like, like, you know, I'm not very well versed in metal or jazz, but I listen to, I listen to increasingly a lot more metal and a little more jazz, mainly just a lot more kind of metal and hardcore and hard rock in general, just something I've gravitated towards in the last year and a half. But, you know, if I ever tried to write about that music with authority, um, in, in a way that say like, I don't like Tom Bryan or like Zoe camp or, uh, Kim Kelly have done, I'd be laughed out of the room. I, I, I have no authority and I can't even fake it. I, I wouldn't even try but through my newsletter, I'm able to just be like, hey, I've, I, you know, this doom metal song is great. It sounds loud. I really like it. I hope you like it, too. And yeah, like, the, the, the way I try to do it is if I don't have authority, like, you don't faking authority is a bad idea. Yeah. Um, or, or also even just like, uh, you know, trying to talk about like genre in this huge way is a, is a bad idea unless you're super, super steeped in it. Yep. So I think just approaching like any song, like as any other song, and you just talk about what the song is doing and like, you know, just just take it on its own terms and you don't really have to, you know, pretend that you know everything about the artist and everything about the context. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, too, because it's like I kind of one of the things I was doing early in my career was running Pitchfork's track section, which, you know, is a lot different now than it used to be, but you know, circa 2010 uh, through like 2014, it was literally just posting like eight to 10 songs a day, a mixture of like uh, blurbs that other writers had written and kind of my own blurbs. And, you know, for me, it was kind of like short form blogging. I would just, you know, throw up a song, three sentences and share it with people and see how it goes. And, I liked doing that simply because it was just uh, a way of like, I've always liked sharing music with people and just be like, Hey, have you heard this? Like, it sounds good to me. So like that was really engaging to me and like being able to go back to that in a way where I don't have, you know, I don't know, an editor breathing down my neck for like six other things or whatever is, is, is kind of like weirdly freeing and casual and, you know, the more I've gotten comfortable with it, the more I'm like, okay, like, this is just a fun thing that I do and I really enjoy it. Yeah. 
you also do a lot of interviews in this thing. I think we should probably mention that. Like you, like you just did one with Panda Bear. You've talked to the, a, a bunch of like pretty notable artists. And wh- how has that experience been? Uh, when it's for this smaller audience and like, talk, like how is the, the experience of talking to artists with this completely different kind of expectation of what they're doing in doing an interview and what the audience is? You know, I, I, when I first started the newsletter or when I was even getting ready to like kind of conceive of what it was going to be, I kind of figured I wouldn't do any interviews because I just didn't think at, at that point in time, like when I started thinking about this, let's say like 2018 or so, the the publicity machine that is kind of music coverage online was still kind of well-oiled enough that like, you know, for a small newsletter to get a taste of that, you kind of have to wait close to the back of the line for, for a wide variety of artists. So I just kind of figured it wouldn't be a thing. Um, obviously a lot has changed in terms of, music coverage in the last several years so when i finally got around to starting this i you know i threw out a few hail marys in terms of artists that i have like personal relationships with and you know publicists that trust me and stuff like that and i was just like hey like i'd love to do this but you know it's no pressure and it was actually funny because before the newsletter started i put in a few requests with artists uh where I just didn't get any answer at all, despite the fact that I've had longstanding relationships with those publicists. And then maybe about a month into the newsletter going, when people actually saw what it was, then all those people came back around and was like, Hey, let's do this. And I was like, Oh, (laughs) great. Like, which is like, you know, I don't, I don't blame them at all. I think you, I think you need to see something to believe it. And I also think that writing online in general is littered with so many, unrealized projects and you know kind of half-assed attempts at doing something that you know i mean you know if you're perfume genius as publicist and somebody's like hey uh i want to do an interview with one of the biggest stars in indie rock right now uh for my newsletter with <laughs> 1500 followers total would you do it like <laughs> i don't know you know but when you actually see the that i you know put kind of a level of care into this stuff, I think then the attitude changes a little bit, I found. So yeah, the yeah. one is funny actually, because I, I have done a lot of work on like through various interviews with everyone in animal collective over the last five or so years to the point where I've become familiar with a few of them. Uh, and I just kind of wanted to reach out to Noah directly and see if he would do an interview because mainly because I just really wanted to check in on him and see how he was doing because I, I really do love him as a person beyond my appreciation of his music and I feel like those are kind of the those are kind of the best type of interviews that I do for the newsletter stuff where I'm just kind of casually catching up with somebody uh, and not so much like sitting there with a list of questions making sure I hit all my beats for so that the piece is good enough you know like I like treating these as a conversation so that it comes across as less formal and more just kind of two two friends talking about stuff. Yeah, there's a kind of a, there's a there's, it's more human and also kind of this kind of points to a, a, a kind of community that technically exists, but mm. people don't really, you know, it, it seems informalized or unrecognized. Yeah. No, I agree. And yeah, I mean, I, I, 
Yeah, I I mean, obviously, there's... It's funny to kind of run a one-person publication that way, because it's like, I think typically in the past, if I've done an interview, I go to... I would then go to an editor and be like, when do you want me to file this by? And, you know, I now I have to be like, when do I want to file this by to me, uh, for me? <laughs> and, like, that's kind of been, like, a little bit of a shift. And, you know, uh you have to hold yourself to certain standards as a result. But I have also just found that to be kind of enjoyable. Like I'll, I'll just be like, why don't I run this today? Like, uh, no one's telling me not to. <laughs> so I might as well, you know, which is yeah. nice. I mean, I, I kind of live my life by a lot of like arbitrary deadlines. Mm. They're just kind of there. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, at this point, like I write four, usually four posts a week. I have, I do, two podcasts a week and I have, I, I try to have a playlist out every week. And those are like the three major pillars of the thing as it is right now. But I could miss some of that or underdo some of that. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I guess I, I suppose I have a, a certain contract with the audience who pay for like the premium posts, uh, the, the premium playlist on Saturdays. But other than that, I mean, I could just be derelict in duty for a week and I don't think literally anyone cares. Yeah, I, I found that too, honestly, with regards to just, I mean, I think it's about audience communication too, to me, like, if I if I know that I'm not going to be really publishing one week for personal reasons or whatever, I'll just, I'll just say that. And I, I found that the response is pretty, like, yeah, okay, see you next week. Like, you know, like, people are, people are willing to just wait. And that's, that's cool. And I think it's, I think that's nice in a way that, uh, a lot of other experiences writing on the internet simply aren't. <laughs> so, okay, just kind of like pulling back a little. Do you think that we are kind of moving back into a period where there's more people doing independent media? Or is that something that might seem the case because, you know, we're both doing that and we know a few other people who are doing that? I, I, I feel like it's more the latter, but also like, I think independent media has always existed, obviously. And like, you know, it's more just like how visible is it at any given moment? Um, it's really disorienting to watch so much conversation around Substack uh, being this home for, you know, like cancel culture warrior idiots because like or like already like celebrity writers yeah exactly yeah 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 like because to me i'm just like like now it's like you know you used to see people make lazy jokes about podcasts and now you see people make lazy jokes about substack and i'm like well you know like it's it's just a platform like there's there's like it contains multitudes it's not just you know barry weiss or whatever but um I, I don't know. I mean, one thing that was really interesting that, um, why am I forgetting his name right now? Hold on one second. <laughs> I'm like, I'm totally blanking here. Oh, okay. Yeah. My God. It's so embarrassing. So I did an interview my newsletter with Joe Steinhardt from uh, Don Giovanni who founded Don Giovanni, which is a great, and kind of a long-running punk-focused label in Jersey. Um, and we were talking after the interview portion, and he was like, he was like, it must be enjoyable to be running your own 
thing. And I was like, yeah, it's been it's been kind of freeing so far. And he was like, yeah, well, you know, you know what's going to happen with all these uh, kind of independent attempts at media is that they're all going to get snatched snatched up by VCs at some point in the future, which I kind of agree with him on. Like, like it is like it's the same cycle as you know what we saw with a lot of blogs in the 2000s um, where, you know, there was kind of like brief ish efforts to kind of like take a few blogs and put them under one, one big umbrella. Like I'm sure that will happen at some point. Uh, And, you know, like it just seems like the kind of like a cyclical thing to me where like, you know, there's this kind of like spurt of, you know, new independent minded uh, publishing platforms. And then they slowly clump together and then everything becomes unrecognizable and then things start to fail. And then there's a spurt of new publishing platforms. Like it just seems like yeah, we're kind of in a loop there. I also think though that like, and this is, this is really not a knock against any writers and, specifically more just in general, I think a lot of writers just kind of lack the discipline to do something like this. Oh yeah. I think that's true. Cause I mean, I, I mean, there's been so many times over the past few years where I've talked to usually much younger writers and be like, you know, you should just like start your own thing. And that's just a good way for even just like if your whole goal is to be hired elsewhere, Ooh. it's a good way to, you know, become a known quantity or, or people at least recognizing, Oh, this person can like meet self-imposed deadlines and create clean copy without like outside help, you know, just basic things like that, that show that you're employable. Yep. But, but I, I just think that it's, it's not interesting to a lot of people. And I think there's also, I really feel like, especially through a lot of millennial people in that cohort, this, the idea of, writing and not being paid for it or this seems like why would you even do that yeah yeah and like you know i get that i mean i get that in a way that like it's like i get that in a way that's like you know there are publications now like supposedly legitimate publications that will just be like hey you know like write this for free and if you write five free things, maybe the sixth one will give you a little bit of money. And I mean, obviously, I mean, but right, but that's completely different from doing something for yourself. Exactly. Yeah. It's about, I think it's about like, I think if you're doing something for yourself, it's because you really enjoy doing this. And I do really enjoy doing this, but I mean, look, I, I feel like you've probably had this sensation too. How many newsletters have you signed up for to subscribe in the last year where you've been like, I want to see more of what this person says. And then you never see another post from them again. Like, or, or they come very sporadically. Yeah, and, and there's no real, like, focus or, like, <laughs> discipline to it. And I'm not really, like, again, like, it's, like, I'm not, like, knocking anybody for that because I think that it is, like, it's a hard thing to adhere to. And, like, you know, as far as my own problems with, like, self-validation and anxiety or whatever, like, it's, it's a fucking minefield to do something like this uh, in regards to all of that. But at the same time, like I really enjoy it. And that's what kind of like puts me through it. And I think that unless you kind of have that, like, okay, like I'm going to like write three times a week, no matter what type of attitude, which people find hard, people find hard to do too. Then, you know, I think it's just kind of, I think kind of falls by the wayside a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think that's another thing I was like, I don't know. 
I probably do have a weird kind of level of discipline that that's not normal as far as like having, I mean, it's funny because so I re- a few years ago, um, I realized that I could kind of redirect that sort of energy, that kind of compulsive energy towards other parts of my life that I had never considered, like exercise, for example. So, you know, up in up until just uh, before the pandemic, like I was like a, a daily gym person every day. Like I would maybe miss like a couple days in a year. Mm. And, but yeah, this realizing, oh, okay. So I have this kind of discipline in me that is ingrained. It has been in me for a very long time. Maybe, I don't know if it's inherent or whatever. Like, I think I definitely inherited some things from my dad, for example, or even just from, from like uh, observing uh, behavior. But yeah, I don't know. I guess like, that, like in, in because like you live in a world where that is just how everything is like realizing, oh, you're not all like this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like the, when I think about like the sheer amount of time I spend doing like like weird research stuff for like my site and like playlist stuff. It's like, no, this is like this is how I have fun. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I do think it's also like. I think there are really great writers who I love reading who also like really hate writing and who uh, can find it to be a real struggle. Um, Writing can be kind of this like maybe this kind of torturous (laughs) exercise in kind of saying what you feel. And, you know, I, I think we've all been down that road when it comes to writing criticism or pretty much anything, but uh you know, for me, like the newsletter is almost like, uh, it's, it's like, it's almost like exercise. Really, It's like, it's like, it keeps me in practice. Like I don't, I know that like, I don't have to write something that has, you know, particular import or meaning, meaning every single time I sit down. But as long as I write something and I hit publish at the end, I, I feel pretty good about it, which I kind of enjoy it. And it makes me enjoy writing more and it makes the next project even less intimidating as a result. One of the things that I figured out like a long time ago now, cause I've been doing it for like 19 years, but I realized like one of the benefits of having this thing and especially having like this self-imposed deadline. I mean, I used to do five posts a week then I switched to four at some point, but uh, just like a daily routine. It was just like, cause I mean, I, when I started, I really had nothing else in my life. I was unemployed. I was just out of art school. I was just completely like lost. I had no direction. I was not really trying to become a writer. Mm. Um, but I realized that like in doing the writing, the goal was not always to write like the best thing I was possibly capable of, but just kind of gradually push the, the bar. So like, whatever the most the worst thing i write was always like getting better like the <laughs> the, the worst i could do would just be like middling or passable that's fine because like i don't want to be worse than that yeah yeah that makes that that makes sense <laughs> i i completely understand uh where 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 that kind of comes from and yeah i mean it's just it to me like it just kind of like I really like writing. I always have. And (laughs) it's something that like, you know, I've seen a few of our, I saw a few of our peers kind of when there was this kind of brief sub stack boom uh, around music writing last year. 
kind of like kind of turn their noses up and like, well, why would you do this? And I'm just kind of like, why wouldn't I do this? Like, like, do you see any other options? Like I, I go to other, you know, I go to other publications and I'll pitch, you know, three or four record reviews that I think are pretty interesting. And they'll come back and tell me no, but can you do this other big pop record instead? Like, like there's no real Avenue I feel, or the avenues certainly have been winnowing uh, for to kind of like follow your own arrow in terms of what you want to write about. So like, wait, wait. So when people were saying like, uh, why would you do that? Like, what was the nature of their objection? Oh, no, it was just like, it was just like, kind of, you see, like, you just see like a few stray people online be like, I don't get this. Like, why, why would you start a newsletter? Like, <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? Like, you're, why you're, would you start a Twitter feed? Exactly. Like, why, why do we do anything? Why do we express ourselves online at all? Like, and also these, these are people who I saw saying this where like, they're old enough that they lived through the blog era. So it's like, why, like you know why the fuck people do this? Like, what, what, what are you thinking? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just the same thing in different shapes, you know? Like, I mean, I still have, like, my blog is a WordPress website that stands separately, but I'm almost certain that the vast majority of the audience is, like, on the newsletter. You know, I've read, I, I, I've talked to you about this before, um, but, you know, I grew up reading uh, Fluxblog, and I grew up reading stereo gum and i grew up reading said the gramophone i grew up reading all these different music blogs where to me the most interesting part of those of reading all of these music blogs as somebody who loved music and was a you know in their teens was the fact that it seemed like everybody was doing it because they liked it and I, i honestly think that some of my some of the some maybe some of the music blogs have been more critical of over the years it's because i've seen maybe kind of like a lack of passion <laughs> or just kind of a level of a, a level of aesthetic remove that doesn't really suggest there's a human behind it but like th- this stuff is good when like like the and when i say this stuff i mean kind of like the era of blogging and just like the practice of you know writing uh casually for whoever will read it you know it works when they're when you can tell that the person behind it is genuinely engaged with what they're doing uh it's kind of rewarding for all parties in that respect to me yeah i mean and for to me like like when I, when I think about okay, so people coming to this now being like, why would you do a Substack? Why would you do a blog? Like, I don't think that would have ever occurred to me at the start of things because I start this around 2002, early 2002, and that's not very far removed from when zines were a whole thing. And I didn't really get a lot of zines growing up. I just didn't really have a lot of access to it. But you know, I was very aware that this was a culture. This is a thing that people do. You know that people just. You know, it's, it's just part of the culture, you know, and but I mean, I, I was more directly inspired by like magazines, you know? Yeah. I mean, if anything, I feel like it's weirder to kind of have an era of younger people being like, instead of being like, I'm going to create a zine being like, I'm going to write for, for like a publication. 
Like, that's weird. Right. I, I want to work. Look, listen, I, I want to contribute to the culture by writing like blurbs about things I don't care about for a VC backed startup company. <laughs> yeah. Like, we're, like it's like we're, there's no romance at all. <laughs> I mean, the, well, the aspiration, uh, the aspirational element is purely social, which is, I think, kind of why you i think it's a very small part of why everything is kind of in a state of transition but it it is a part of it like you know i i think that you look at a lot of corporations and kind of the bigger digital platforms and the gradual shift away from anything that's like bold and and like maybe like against the grain and you just kind of see like you just kind of see like cookie cutters being filled in terms of content and writing. And it's been that way for a bit. I feel like it's, I feel like the only change now is that a lot of those cookie cutters simply just don't exist anymore because everything is shutting down or laying off or whatever. But um, right. I think there's also just a thing where it's just like the audience maybe doesn't respond to this thing as well as it did before, but people yet it persists. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there, there is, I think you're seeing that too with several, several kind of major, uh, digital media hubs where, you know, the, it almost, you almost feel like it's out of time when you're reading because it's like this, this is something that maybe people liked six years ago. But it's not necessarily the type of thing that people want to read now, but also it's, you know, kind of all we know. So we're going to keep doing it. And, you know, it's kind of a it's kind of a clash. And it's it's just been interesting to witness. happen uh i i mean like i'm kind of a i'm kind of like a pessimist uh, about some of this stuff or not pessimist but maybe just kind of a realist uh and i think that the only way to fix a lot of the major digital media platforms is just to kind of deconstruct them and rebuild them from the ground up um i think that setting aside the money aspect which is obviously miserable uh, the tangles of audience growth, the, you know, all the different, like, kind of, like, streams that within these platforms of, like, you know, you have video, you have advertorial, you have all this stuff. I, I also just think that uh, a lot of media institutions, uh, even the ones that are supposedly benign, have just kind of histories of abuse and mistreatment and structural inequality baked into them where it's like, you know, you can't change 
you can't change those things simply by saying like we're changing like somebody has to kind of be like all right we're like we're all leaving our jobs and we're giving the jobs to different people who maybe deserve these jobs more like you have to completely change the makeup of everything i think for things to actually change that might be a more wide-reaching answer yeah oh i mean but also i think it also speaks to your experience i don't know how much you can say but you came out of two of like what are the more two of the like the more brutal companies that people know about in music media Mm -hmm. yeah i won't go into specifics for obvious legal reasons but um yeah i mean look we kind of saw this last year, right? With uh, kind of this, what now appears to me to be kind of like a faux reckoning amongst a lot of publications and digital media companies where, you know, it's like, okay, you know, the, the people are protesting. We're acknowledging that we're going to do better. And there are things being exposed and we're going to look into them and we're going to talk to people about them and we're going to have diversity committees and we're going to have anti-sexual harassment training and you know then everything just kind of goes back to normal and i think we all just kind of wait for more stuff to happen like i like i like i don't think there's any evidence uh that anybody's really learned anything right like inertia always seems to set in exactly yeah and like you know i i think uh racial inequality is always a really good and easy to understand lens to look at this stuff through. Cause it's like, nothing's going to get done <laughs> if you just have a bunch of white people in the same positions they've always had saying, all right, we're going to, we're going to solve this racism problem in here. Like it's not how you do it. It's, it simply doesn't work. And it, that's not real change. That's saying that you're interested in real change, which, you know, you can be interested in a lot. Well, of you things. can also, you can just recognize it's a good idea. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, no, no one's going to argue that it's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, it's true. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, you're, I mean, like, I've definitely, I feel like anybody that's listening can look it up. I've definitely been at a few places over the last couple of years that have had, you know, just like massive uh, problems with regards to misogyny and sexual misconduct and just, you know, general mistreatment of anybody that doesn't look like me in general. And, you know, like I think the first time it's the first time I was in a position to kind of witness all that it scammed as tragedy. And the second time it kind of scammed as farce because I just saw the people in charge repeating almost every single, you know, in action that I witnessed the first time. But also like, I guess there's, there is like capacity. If there's one like positive thing to take away from that, it is the capacity for change. Cause like, you know, I've worked in a bunch of different places over the last 12 years or so. And there hasn't been a single place where I haven't witnessed some sort of like horrific or disgusting, uh, <laughs> instance of sexual harassment or misconduct, from from men and you know i mean look like as as a man i i consider i consider like you know sexually explicit talk about other co-workers to also be sexual harassment so i have i have, I have been like the subject of sexual harassment as well like it's like it's everywhere it's pervasive i think that the big difference is that 
at least now people get exposed for it, which is like progress. But like, yeah, like there's there's more like a, like potential consequences. Like like maybe like the 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 tenth time you do it wrong, it happens to be the time that right. you know triggers the uh, mechanism that uh, humiliates and takes you out of your job. Yeah, I feel like when when we're finally able to erase the word potential from the phrase potential consequences, that's when <laughs> seems there might be real change. But like, yeah, I mean, it's progress that people are getting in trouble for it. Because like, I don't know, I've been in situations where, without getting too far into it, I've been in situations where I've, I've reported stuff and it's just been like, okay, we're, we're going to make sure that nobody else knows about this. And I'm just like, and also you can't tell anybody about it because you have an NDA. And I'm like, oh, that's great. So, you know. No one, no one wins, and except the people who keep doing terrible things. But at least there's more accountability now, which is at, a relief. At this stage, like having had these experiences, and also just kind of, kind of moving through the machine a few times over, like how much interest do you have in kind of going back to that kind of life where you're working in like management in uh, a media company? You know, I. It, as I've, I've been in a, like kind of a management position in a few different uh, companies now in, ter- in the way that like being a senior editor, you are kind of always managing somebody as well. So I've thought, a, I've thought about this a lot in terms of my own abilities. Cause I think like, I'm not sure I like <laughs> managing people. I think I like people too much to manage people. And I think it, I think like, I was actually talking about this with my wife the other day. I think like, whenever somebody's like a really good, whenever you hear somebody's like a good manager, I'm always kind of like, what does that mean? Like, like, did they, are they a good manager that they're empathetic? Or are they a good manager in that they've read all the books about how to fuck you up? How, um, how would you des- describe a good manager in your own experience? I mean, when you think of like the best manager you've had? Um, I think somebody that fights for you that you can learn from. Um, yeah, I would, I would agree with that. And then layer in, uh, I think the best manager I ever had, she did a lot to just kind of like try to push me forward, like to try to like give me new challenges in a way that no one else had bothered. Cause I think, uh, in my experience with, I mean, I have had a bunch of managers just at Buzzfeed and, I think there's a, a tendency for people to be like, oh, this person can just kind of work self-directed and doesn't really need that much oversight or doesn't really need like that much structure. They'll just put it on themselves. But I think like having that kind of push was very helpful for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, somebody that can kind of like somebody that can like help you grow um, or even just cared, you know, exactly. I, think a lot, I think a lot of managers, you know, yeah, it's just kind of like you're just babysitting yep yeah oh my god that's exactly what it is um and you know like i I honestly like i think that i thought a lot about you know would i like what would i do returning back to a job because i my last my last job I, i was joking to everybody that it felt like i was kind of like in, in a, I was like, I was like signing up for one last heist in near the end of a movie, you know? Um, but I feel like historically for me, whenever I've gone to a media company where I have been in a role of power, 
I have very quickly become uh, completely disgusted with almost every single aspect of the culture around me. (laughs) And as a result, I just kind of like, it's this kind of like this familiar arc to me where like, I'll get somewhere, I'll assess the landscape and then I'll get deep enough where I'll be like, this place is fucked and everybody is being very badly mistreated. And I'm going to do my best to try and help change the culture. Do, Do you think that there's possibility that you could be have like the same sort of job, but in a situation that is, let's say not like pure and like completely innocent, but you know, relatively benign and generally positive. I mean, I think the industry, I think the industry has to change for that to be a thing. Cause like all of the experiences I've had that have been negative have also been kind of endemic of a lot of the problems in digital media. Uh, uh, so, you know, like I, you know, like I think in terms of like looking for jobs, cause again, I am still freelancing. I, I just think to myself, like whenever I see like a senior position somewhere i'm like i could i could apply for that but like at, at what personal cost is it going to is it going to be uh, yeah <laughs> I, mean, I, I think kind of tying this all together with a bow there's kind of this is kind of a reason that people should be aiming towards independent media not just mm-hmm. as like solo gigs like we have but uh you know like starting like a new publication from the ground up where you know you could potentially write all the wrongs from the get go rather than having to retrofit things uh, which is very difficult to do i think yeah and I, I mean you've seen some discussion online of people being like let's let's group a bunch of newsletters together or like let's form something and there have been websites that have there've been independent websites that have emerged in the past year that have been very, very worth reading. And you can, like, just, which ones, if you want to throw some names uh, out. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking most of Defector, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. Uh, I, like, for, for just a music publication, I, I've been into uh, Loud and Quiet, which is a British publication. Oh, I have not heard of them. I'm gonna... And it's like Loud and Quiet kind of has the, the mode of kind of like, uh, like, like early pitchfork or early stylus, like that kind of thing, where it's just a bunch of writers and they do. Like, I mean, I guess that's also print in England, uh, like, but they're the kind of magazine that seems unthinkable now where one, they'll even just have a print edition at all. And that print edition will have like a incredibly long cover story about a band that has not released anything more than a single, you know, mm. I'm thinking of a specifically of a, a black country. What is the name of that band? <laughs> black country, new road. Yeah. Black country, new road is a, is a specific example of something they did like that. Um, I also love Tone Glow, um, which has a really specific energy to it, uh, that is both like, it's rare to say this as a compliment, but I find Tone Glow's editorial energy to be like really alienating in a good way. Like, it seems like it's always like coming at me with a bunch of stuff I've never heard before. Like I haven't even seen people talk about it before. And sometimes they'll be like, yeah, here's this ambient record that the five of us have been talking about. And four of us think it's total shit and that you're a loser if you like this. And like, I kind of like, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but like, that's real nineties energy right there. It is. And I kind of love it. Like, it's like, it's very, it's like, you know, uh, 
it's it's a little snobbish in in a way that like you get when you really care about something and i find it like almost like joyfully intimidating even though i think uh joshua who runs tonglo gives a very sincere uh passion uh as far as like what he does but yeah yeah i, I, I think like- you're also getting at something that i would like to see more of and even just on my like what i'm trying to do on my own it's just like because I've been reading so many magazines from the eighties and nineties, like especially the spin ones, I find the the classic spin to be very inspiring because you'll just have a lot of these writers, like specifically the, the Charles Aaron and John Leland who just have like these incredibly good voices and like they, they can just kind of, you know, get a really cool idea. That's this well phrased and it's kind of fun to read. And it's like, oh, that's the energy that like I feel like I can do, but I don't know if like I've been thinking about it in those terms of trying to, you know, even just be entertaining as a reader for people to read it. And I think voice matters a lot. And I think that, you know, I think I think voice, voiciness in music writing has really, really been dialed down in the past 10 years or so. Yeah, I agree. And uh, in a way that like, you know, like, attitude like the that kind of like attitude of express expressing your opinion in the most sorry i thought i had to sneeze um in the most kind of aggressive or outsized way possible it doesn't really happen uh as much as yeah i don't know even even necessarily needs to be aggressive because i would say like rob sheffield's not aggressive but he's or like tom bryan i don't think is like tremendously aggressive but does this is the word i was looking for was that extroverted is the word yeah i mean i when i think about like the kind of writing that's kind of been dominant in the past like 10 years or so it really tends to be writing that is um it has like a touch of academicness to it it's you know there's a certain uh i'm trying to figure out like how to put this uh it's it's polite and wants to be clear and it wants to be uh, respectable. I think it's it's a lot of writing that wants to be very respectable. Mm. Yeah, and I think the yeah. the writing that I want to read does not care about respectable. It would rather be cool. And I think if I think especially when you're dealing with music publications, like like having the reader, the audience think that you're cool probably goes a long way. Right. So if you just read a bunch of things, oh, these are all a bunch of like squares and nerds that can put off a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think you're right. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. And yeah, I, 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 uh, I'm, I think I'm in the same boat as you in terms of what I look for these days with what to read. Uh, maybe that's, that's a good answer in terms of what I want to see actually take place. Uh, I feel like I, I said this to when I talked with Todd for Todd Burns for his music journalism newsletter too, though, when you see one of the questions he had me fill out was like, what is, what would you like to see more of in music writing? And like, I feel like I always kind of defer a little bit to younger people and just kind of like, what are they most interested in doing? And not like, what are they most interested? Like, what are they being told to do? Like, what passions do they want to follow? I feel like that kind of gets lost a little bit in music writing in general. Uh, 
know, yeah, I think right? I think like the that energy the energy kind of like uh during I guess like when when a lot of music writing was coming out of Tumblr, like that was a really good phase because that was kind of like a lot of the writers who are you know, currently a lot of them still in their twenties, but just like really just following their own energy and passions in a way that was kind of at odds with where the publications were at. And a lot of those people ended up being kind of like absorbed into it. Yeah. Which yeah. is, you know, the way it should be really. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think you're right about that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I, I think, I think we've covered a lot of ground here, so it's probably a good place to go. Uh, just a, <laughs> a lot of thinking about uh, music media, you know, so, uh, can, yeah, just uh, tell the audience like where they can find uh, Last Dona and uh, anything you'd want to plug. Yeah, uh, it's you can go to lastdonutofthenight.substack.com. Uh, there, you, 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 what, what is the origin of that name, by the way? It is the name of a. Uh, I think it's the first song off of Jay Dilla's Donuts. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, should have uh, known that. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually was going between that. For the name and a different feeling, which is my favorite Avalanche song, because both those records kind of have the same vibe for me in terms of my own musical taste. But I chose Last Dono of the Night. More people, more of my friends liked it, <laughs> essentially. But um, yeah, you could also pivot into food blogging if you want to. Exactly. Yeah, I can do. I can start, you know, reviewing every single Dunkin' Donuts menu item. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, it's last donut of the night at substack.com or dot substack.com. And you can subscribe for free. You can do a paid subscription if you want. I'm just happy that people read it. So, you know, it's always what I'm just looking for. <laughs> so. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Larry. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Thank you.